Certainly the weather outside is so nice, it's hard to be inside, isn't it? (laughs) But praise the Lord, we're here together. Hey, if you could open up your Bibles, let's open up to 1 Samuel 29. 1 Samuel 29. I've been so enjoying going through the book of Samuel. It's one of my favorite uh, parts of the Bible. Um. And I think part of the reason I love it so much is not only is it history, uh, biblical history, but it's so rich when we look at the character of, of certainly Saul and Samuel and David, which are really the three main characters of, of the book of Samuel, First Samuel anyway. And just to see what David went through and, and how God had uh, continued in spite of his own failings, because we know that there's none perfect other than God, right? We know that he alone is perfect. But all of his servants, all throughout history, are imperfect vessels. And and just to see God using a man like David, who, even though he had his issues like we all do, to, to understand that God, uh, God knew what he wanted to accomplish through David's life. And David made his heart such, or he, I shouldn't say he made his heart such, he, he had it in his heart to, he loved God. He loved the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, he loved the Lord, and he wanted to do everything to please him. And, and so it's one of my favorite books in, in the Bible. And I'm really looking forward to 2 Samuel, which we'll be getting into probably the week after next. Um, but tonight we're in chapter 29. Last week, we looked at chapter 28, which was a, uh, a really kind of very dark uh, chapter, certainly in the life of Saul, who had continued to rebel and continued to uh, push back on God's uh, grace and his calling for his life. But Saul was made of different stuff than David, and David made his mistakes, and we're going to see, we've already seen him. Uh, in his unbelief and just being his his character being somewhat erratic um, as he is running and as he is uh, fearful, which we all can go through fearful times in our life. There's none of us are immune to fear, but it's what we do with the fear that is the thing that is the difference. And David he ran. <laughs> And he had his moments, but Saul really never recovered. Saul was always one of those who just always fighting against the Lord and not doing what the Lord wanted him to do. And, and it's true in any, um, any area of authority, that authority is under authority. And when that authority ceases to be under God's authority and thinks that somehow they, they can control their own destiny, that's a, that's a person, an individual that is in a lot of trouble because we are all under authority. You know, when we were young kids, we were under the authority of our parents. When we became older and out from our parents, we were still under the authority of certainly our, 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 um, our employers and certainly those who, um, perhaps hold banknotes against us. You know, if you have a mortgage on a house, you have bankers and you have a bank that is an authority over you. You're a creditor, you're a debtor, if you will, to them. And so we're never really away from this place. And, um, but Saul did not do well. And we're, gonna, we're seeing his, we saw last week, really his, his final opportunity really to really repent. And instead of turning to God, he ultimately turned to, 
he did try to give Saul some credit here. He, he did seek the Lord, but there, there is a point, and this is the scary part of this uh, chapter last week, is there does come a point in the life of a human being when they have shunned God's grace and shunned him so much that God gives us what we ask for. And Saul had gotten to that place, and it's an invisible line for every human being especially for every Christian or, or non-Christian. There is this invisible line that we don't know where that is, and it's God is gracious no matter what. But we don't know how far we can go before God says, you know, that's, that's, that's it. I've given you all of the opportunities that I'm going to give you, and God is very inexhaustible when it comes to his grace. He is plenteous in grace and mercy. But there are times when human beings, we can push that so much where God has to, he has to intervene. And that's what he did in, in Saul's life. And so we never want to get to that place, right? <laughs> we don't want to push the Lord to that limit. I never want to, but I have. I have pushed him, and he's pushed me right back, and I'm really glad he did. He did it in love. Um, and so we're looking, uh, we looked at chapter 28 last week, which was uh, Saul consulting the witch at Endor. And as we look at chapter 29, This is really going to pick up the narrative, if you will, from chapter 27. Um, If you go back, you don't have to do it now, but when we were in chapter 27, it was really after David had, um, he consulted uh, Achish, this king of Gath, and then chapter 28 uh, was really like a parenthesis, if you will, a parenthesis in what was happening in David's life with this Philistine king. And so consider chapter 8 like a a parenthetical chapter because 27, 28, 29, and 30, they all are happening very short with one another as far as time is concerned. And sometimes there's a lot of overlap and and things are happening at the same time. So when you read these chapters, um, especially uh, 28, 29, and 30, they're all happening within probably 24 to 48 hours from one another, somewhere in that range, okay? So it's happening very... um, uh, and even 72 hours, I would imagine. Um, so let's look at this. Based on what we've read, in, um, or what we're going to read in chapter 29 and 30, it seems that while David is here, we're going to see him again fraternizing with the Philistines and, and willing, it seems, to even fight against his own people, the Jews, that the Amalekites are at the same time, or in a rough period of time, a short period of time, they are raiding the town of Ziklag, which David and his men had been staying in, that Achish had given David. And, um, and we're going to find that the Amalekites, around the same time that David is kind of playing footloose and fancy free with the Philistines, at the very same time the Lord is allowing Ziklag, David's wives, all of the peoples, all the men with him, their wives and their kids, to be taken captive by the Amalekites. And he was in a place that he ought not to have been anyway. And so he should have at least been back in Ziklag. What was he doing fighting with Achish, the Philistines, fighting his own people? You have to ask yourself the question. It's insanity. They were the perennial enemy of Israel, and here he is fraternizing with them, even being willing to go to battle with them against his own people. I'm so glad that the Lord intervened in his life and didn't allow it to occur. 
but we see him in his unbelief, in his, uh, in his fear. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 29. It says, Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain, which is in Jezreel. Now, if you were to look at a map of Israel, um, you would see that in the northern part of Israel, there's a town of Aphek, which is uh, in the corner, um, really in the northern part on the west coast of the Mediterranean Sea, somewhere um, between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, but on the uh, west coast. And Aphek is at that place. And Aphek ought to remind us of something that happened earlier in this chapter. And specifically, if I were you, I'd write in your margin of of verse 1 there. Just put in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. Or or you can just put 4, verse 1. Um, Because Aphek, we're going to see, is going to be a reminder to the Israelites of their first defeat there against the uh, Philistines. In fact, let me just read it to you as you're writing it in your margin, because this this place, Aphek, is the exact same place where the Philistines battled against Israel and defeated them years prior to this, taking the Ark of the Covenant. And this happened during the days when Eli was the priest and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who you remember were evil men who were serving alongside of his father. But it says in First Samuel 4, verse 1, it says that It says, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped in Aphek, and the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And um, what had happened at the, and I'm just going to paraphrase the rest of it until we get down to chapter or verse 10. The the Israelites saw themselves in a bad place, so they, they, they call for the Ark of the Covenant to go into battle with them. So they bring the Ark of the Covenant, and it's funny how they related to the Ark. They, they, they referred to it as it. You know, bring out the Ark that it may save us. But who is it that really saved them from the Philistines or would have saved them from the Philistines in that battle back in chapter 4? Was it the Ark or was it the God of the Ark? It's the God of the Ark. See, they were so focused on this box, which is a, a very important piece of furniture. Because <laughs> it was in the temple. It was in the tabernacle. And it had the, the Ten Commandments and, and other articles inside that. So it was a very important um, article for the children of Israel. But they put so much emphasis on that rather than on the God of Israel. And God allowed them in that battle. He allowed them not only to be taken captive, but for the ark to be stolen. And then there'd be 30,000 men of Israel that would die that day. And of course we know that Eli and his sons would also die that very same day. His two sons in the battle, and then Eli, he fell over backward. Uh, he's a very large, the Bible says that he was a fat man. Boy, isn't that um, politically incorrect to say today? He was a fat man, and I, I love the Bible that says he was a fat man. And so he fell over backwards, broke his neck, he died. Poor guy. But in verse 10 it says, So the Philistines fought, Israel was defeated, every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter, and there fell, there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. And the reason I bring this up is because this is a, a psychological, now they're back at the same place in this chapter that we're looking at. And David is there with them. 
David and his 600 men are there with Achish, the king of, of, of the Philistine city of Gath. He is there with them at Aphek. Now, for the, for the Jew, that was a psychological no-no for them because they got beat really bad the last time they met there. And now the Philistines are gathering at the same place. It's sort of like having home court advantage. There's a lot of psychology, a lot of psychological things going on in people's, you know, you, you, remember, you know what it's like when you fail at a certain place, you're less likely to want to go back to that same place because you're like, you remember the failure and it already does something to you. And so the Jews are thinking that. But the Philistines are emboldened. They're thinking, wow, we're going to take care of business. So this is a very unique moment. In verse 2 it says, And the lords of the Philistines noticed they passed in review by hundreds and by thousands, but David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. So here they are. The Philistine army is going out into battle against the Jews. And in the very back is Achish and his army. Because remember, there were many um, towns, many cities going to battle together, and David and his men are in the rear of this battle array that's going against his own people. So then the princes of the Philistines said, verse 3, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, and Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? And to this day I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. And that was Achish's way of saying uh, he believed that David defected to him, and, and it looked like that. D- David was there temporarily, but Achish thought, I've got this guy under my, you know, he's one of my best guys now, and I can use this lad, <laughs> you know, in battles. So he's thinking something different. So Achish believed that David was an ally, but David's heart was not really with Achish. David was hiding in fear and being the hypocrite. So David deceived Achish, and we saw this back in chapter 21. Remember when he was there the first time, and he feigned to be mad, scratching on the, on the doorposts and letting spit come down his beard, which was very shameful for a Jew. And, and he acted mad, and, that, and now, you know, so that was the first time that David met this man. And again, in chapter 27, David had greatly deceived Achish even further by claiming that he was, he was going to be down in Ziklag, which is down in the, in the northern part, I'm sorry, in the southern part of, of Judah. Um, Ziklag is down there on, the, on that border on the southern part of Israel. And Achish had given him that city. And one of the nice things about David being in that city is David would protect the Philistines from the bands of marauders that would come up from the south, the Jeshurites, the Gerzites, the Amalekites. He would be sort of like a border for the Philistines. And that's why Achish gave him that land, because he could be a sort of a guard to him there. And so, but the thing that Achish didn't know, Achish wanted him to be down there to take care of business of the Philistines' enemies down there. But what David was doing is he was going against. See, Achish said, stay down in Ziklag and, and then you know, fight against the enemies of the Philistines, which would include the, Jew, the people of, 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 of Judah and those areas, the Kenites, and we, we see those lists of peoples. But what David did is he attacked the enemies of the Israelites. He went down and attacked the Jeshurites, the Gerzites, the Amalekites, 
and then told Achish when he brought back the spoil, Achish would say, where, where have you been today, David? Oh, just, you know, down south there, you know, uh, to the people of Judah. I've been, you know, taking care of the, my enemy, you know, Israel. And, I, and Achish bought it. He bought it. He just hook, line, and sinker. He believed him, but David was really doing the exact opposite. He was taking out the, the, the Jewish enemies. And so in verse 4 it says, But the princes of the Philistines were angry with Achish, or angry, angry with David. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, Make this fellow, make David return. Tell, tell him to go back to Ziklag, that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him, and do not let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For what could he reconcile himself to his master, if not with the heads of these men? So these men weren't dumb. You know, as David is, is coming in the, the rear of the, of the battle as it's going out, they're thinking to themselves, they don't trust David. And they were right not to trust him. But Achish was still deceived by David's acting abilities. David deceived Achish. And what better time to do that than right in the middle of the war and David's men would attack the Philistines and ingratiate himself to who? Israel again. So they have no trust in him, and they had very good reason not to trust him. And it says, Is not this David of whom they sang to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And then Achish called, verse 6, David, and said to him, Surely, as the Lord lives, you have been upright, and you're going out, and you're coming in with me, and the army is good in my sight. For to this day I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the lords do not favor you. So the other Philistine rulers, they did not trust him for good reason. But notice the praise that Achish is heaping upon David. Completely deceived this man. And David must have been a good actor. Of course he was. He was a musician. (laughs) Because I am one, a musician, I know that musicians have this wonderful, they're they're actors, they 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 can do it all. And so they're very artsy. They know how to, you know, act. They know how to sing. They can dance. They can play a tune, you know. And so, um, and for all, any of you who are musicians, you're, you're all laughing at me. I can see you. But that's okay. You know it's true. That's why you're smiling. So, verse 7, it says, Therefore, return now and go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And remember, Achish, he was the king of Gath, one of the cities of the Pentapolis. We call it a Pentapolis because it was five Philistine cities. We know that they are uh, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron, Ashdod, and certainly Gath. These are five Philistine cities. And so all of these kings and all their armies are together now against Israel. So verse 8, it says, So David said to Achish, But what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I have been with you that I may not go out and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Really, David? Your lord the king is Achish? Have you, do you have amnesia, David? Did, somebody, did, you, did you trip over an olive, you know, an olive root or something like that on the ground and, and hit your head and you, now you, you, you've got amnesia? Have you lost your mind? Temporarily, David was not in the right place. And again, this is a very sticky place for David. 
a very sticky place. Because remember, earlier in the book of Samuel, what did David say when he had opportunities on at least two occasions to kill Saul? What did he say? Even to his men, his men would have gladly killed Saul for him. But David said, no, don't put your hand against the Lord's anointed. If God wants to get rid of him and put me in his place, he's going to do it his way, his time, and by whatever means he chooses. It is not me that I should get in the way of this. And he was rightfully, rightfully to think that way. And what's interesting, and yet it appears that he would have if Achish would have let him. And maybe David knew that the Philistine lords wouldn't allow him to go into battle. I think that he probably knew that they, he knew the temperature of the room. He knew that these Philistine lords were not comfortable with him. Achish was the only one who was hook, line, and sinker. He's a great man. Look at him. He's great. And they're like, no, he's not. He's not great. Get him out of here. And they're like, this guy can't go with us. They weren't snowed by him. And I think David knew ultimately that their opinion of him would have sway. But he was able to play the game and, uh, and, and make it look like to Achish, man, I would do anything. Why can't I go? Oh, come on, man. Let me go into battle with you. I've proven myself all this time. I mean, come on. And, and he knew in his heart that it wasn't going to happen, I think. I believe. And I'm glad that Achish didn't say, you know what? I know that they don't want you to be around here, but just stay quietly in the back. No one will notice. I'm really glad that didn't happen. Because think about what would have happened if David would have really gone out to battle. And if David found himself, he would have found himself in a very unusual, very sticky place. Do I kill my own brothers? Or do I defect right now and, or, or, or turn the tables I mean, who could blame the Philistine lords? To them, David was a liability. And what a ruse, again, it would be if David was in the middle of the battle and then turned against them. Thank God, again, that it didn't happen. And, I'm, and David also should be thankful that God didn't allow this. This would have been an incredible stain on his career, an incredible stain, one that I, don't, I think that the children of Israel might not have forgiven him if he would have killed any one of his countrymen, of his own Jews. So verse 9, Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. Wow, this guy is just, he's, he's like a deceptive sponge. Achish is this just vulnerable guy. He's like a sponge just receiving all, anything that David's telling him as, as gospel and true, completely deceived. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said he shall not go up with us to battle. And this is the third time, if you read this chapter, this is the third time that Achish gave David this kind of praise. The other two times are in verse uh, uh, 3, and we saw also in verse 6. It says, Now therefore, in verse 10, Rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you, and as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart. In other words, David, you're up here in Aphek with us. What I want you to do is to go back down to the place where I told you to go, the, the town that I gave you, down here in Ziklag. Go back down there to Ziklag. And so David and his men, they rose early to depart in the morning and so returned to the land of the Philistines, in other words, to Ziklag. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So the Philistines go even further north from Aphek. They go up north into the Valley of Jezreel, which we call as the Valley of Armageddon in that area. Basically, it's a great place for a battle. 
If you go to Israel with us next year, we go right through that. We travel all through that area, and you get to see exactly where uh, some of these battles have happened and where the ultimate battle is going to be uh, at the end of the Great Tribulation period. You'll see this place, and even Napoleon said this is the perfect place for a battle because it's just flat. It's a perfect place for armies to gather together and face off to each other. So now we get into chapter 30, and notice what it says. It says, Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day. So on the third day, so it took them going from Aphek all the way down to Ziklag. That's about 80 miles, and that took them about three days. The, the terrain is very jagged. It's not an easy path to go, and so it takes them three days to get there. So it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had already invaded the south and Ziklag, and they attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire. Now, who was in Ziklag at this time? David and his men aren't there, but who was left? The women, the children, and the livestock. That's all that's there. They were slim, easy pickings. Now, the Amalekites, coming up from the south, coming up from the south, they knew that Ziklag was going to be easy because all the Israelites are up in the north fighting with the Philistines. And so they're thinking to themselves, this is going to be an easy job. And it indeed was because there was no man around. They marched in there and they took care of business. And the good news is, as we'll see here, is that... It says, verse 2, and had taken captive the women and those who were with him from small to great. Notice, they didn't kill anyone. Thank you, Jesus, that they didn't kill anybody. They didn't kill anybody, but they, they carried them away and they went their way. So basically what they're thinking is if, if an army comes in and doesn't kill everybody, then they have other uses for those people, and it's usually slavery. They're either going to use them as slaves themselves, the Amalekites, going to use these Jews as slaves, or they're going to sell them as slaves. Either way, the destiny of these women and children is really, really, really bad. And so David, verse 3, and his men, they came to the city. Remember, they've been traveling for three days, leaving the battle. That Saul, remember, we're going to see this in, in chapter 31 next week, while David and those men are coming down south to, to Ziklag, the battle is raging up in the north with Saul and his men, Jonathan and his sons. They're all in battle up there in the valley of, in the valley of Jezreel, in the valley of Armageddon, in that area. So David and his men come to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, and their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. And then David and the people who were with him, they naturally lift up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. Have you ever cried so hard that you, your tear ducts just dried up and you, you had like dry, dry crying? Have you had a dry cry where you had nothing left in you? <laughs> Have you been so overwrought with, with remorse and pain? That's the way these men were. And they're thinking to themselves, David, why did we go up there to Aphek anyway? Why were we up there fighting with, you know, David, that the Philistines are the, the perennial enemy of Israel. God told us to wipe them out. And what are we doing? This plan that you had, and we, went, we all went along with it. We went up there with you, up there, and why, we have no idea. We get up there, and we're fighting against our own people. What's the matter with you? Now we lost our wives and our kids, 
And they are fuming mad. They're fuming mad at David. And for good reason. David was not being, he wasn't in his right mind. Because while David and his men were in a place that they shouldn't have been up there in Aphek, at the same time that's occurring, the Amalekites have come up from the south and they have raided Ziklag, taken everybody captive. So while David was playing the hypocrite, his family and those of all the men who were with him were taken captive. And we see this, I believe, as a chastening of the Lord in David. And it was a big chastening, too, because it was his fault. It was his fault that these men had lost their wives and their kids. And they knew it, and he knew it. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 8, verse 5, it says, You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. There comes a time in our lives, each one of us have been chastened by the Lord. Um, I know I have been, and if you haven't, there's probably a time in your life when you will be. But with the word chasten is, is a really unique thing because when God chastens, he doesn't chasten you like a father does. You know, your father, when you were younger, remember, he could have been really angry with you and he gets out the belt and he's just, you know, his teeth are flaring and his eyes are on fire and, you know, he's whipping you, you know. That can happen, but is that God's desire? To, just to whip you just because he's angry because you sinned? no. The Bible says that God chastens those whom he loves. Chastening has within it the idea of instruction within the consequence. See, that's the way we need to chasten our children. We don't just, you know, take this, you know, we don't spank our children just because they've, you know, we're angry with them because they did something we told them not to do. No, when my daughter, when she was little, you know, when she would run out in her, with her big wheel out our driveway out to the road, we'd put, we had to put cones up. And I said, honey, don't go past the cones. Why? Is it because I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, I put down, you know, I'm man, hear me roar, you know, um, you break my law and I'm going to, you know, pound you. Is it, is it because I'm just an animal? No, it's because I don't want her dead. And if she goes beyond those cones and the way people come by on our road, that could be certain death for a little person on a big wheel. So I do it because I love. There's instruction in it. I tell my daughter, honey, don't do this, and here's the reason why. <laughs> and that really gets them to pay attention. You know, it's like, honey, do you want to go out and, this? you know, I wouldn't recommend this necessarily. Do you want to go out and get splatted by a car? I mean, sometimes you've got to tell them the truth, you know, because that's, that's what could happen. But that's chastening. If she breaks that, then you've got to follow through with whatever you've, you know, the consequence in Hebrews chapter 12, it says this. Now, I believe David, this whole event with the Ziklag being burnt and everybody being taken, I believe that was God getting David's attention. He was shaking his tree. David was out of his mind in a place where he shouldn't have been, and God's just taking the tree and going, shaking the tree up, shaking the tree up, chastening his wayward son, and certainly chastening all the other men who were with him. What are you guys doing? David, what are you doing? Men who are following David, what are you doing? Why are you in Aphek fighting against your own people? What is the matter with you? What's wrong with this picture? But God chastens those whom he loves. And did he love David? Did he love those men? He did. Did he love the Philistines? Yes, he loved them too. But they had turned their back on God and followed false gods. Would God take any one of them if, if they turned from their wicked ways? Yes, he would. He's not a respecter of persons. But notice what it says in Hebrews 12. Let me just read it to you. 
The author of Hebrews says, You have not resisted the bloodshed striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. He says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. And I believe David was being rebuked and chastened by God. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son that he receives. He says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with a son. For what son is there among a father? Um, uh, whom a father does not chasten. But if you are without chastening, of which all are become partakers, then you are illegitimate, and you're not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers, and I can relate to this, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, But he, God, for our prophet, and there's the definition of chastening for our prophet. Does he? Is he just? He just wants to ruin your fun? No. He. He's everything he does is to instruct you in righteousness, to instruct you in the way you should go. But he, for our prophet, why? That we might be partakers of his holiness. And then verse eleven. I love the honesty of this. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. When you're chastened by the Lord, what, what a wonderful reunion there is afterwards. You remember when you did something wrong as a child and your father or your mother took the belt after you? You can't do that in, in this country anymore because you get thrown in jail. Your kids will be taken away from you, right? Somebody will call CPS on you if you just spank your child once. You, you, you hear the child going, oh, no, mom, don't get the belt. All of a sudden, you've got three agents coming to your door, shackling your kids and taking them away from you. And then you're under fire. You're under, you know, you go to law. David would be chastened not only here, but he would also be chastened. Later on, we're going to see this when we get into 2 Samuel, his, the whole issue with him and Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah the Hittite. David would chasten, or God would chasten David again. And the difference between David and someone like Saul is that David, even though he made his mistakes, he learned from the mistakes. And he was broken when he learned from them, and he learned something. He wasn't the kind of guy who did the one thing and then continued to perpetuate it. No, God broke him every single time. He got the, the message very clearly. See, it's not, it's not the fact that, you know, um, God knows we're not perfect, but God help us if we don't learn from our mistakes. We have to learn, right, from our mistakes. Otherwise, we go through the same class again, the school of hard knocks. We go through it again and again and again until we finally get it, right? God, God wants us to get it the first time, and I think that's one of the hard things about being a parent is that you go through certain things and you tell your kids, honey, don't do that. I know because I've been there. Please don't do that. Well, why? Well, because of this, and you, and you explain it to them, and then they think, well, they can do it better, and then they try it, and then they don't do any better, and they get caught, and then it's just a, an unfortunate thing with the human nature. It seems like we, we're just bent on figuring it out ourselves. We have to figure it out in real time. I wish I would have been the type of person that when my parent or my mom said, honey, don't do this, I would have said, you know what, mom, I believe you, and I'm going to stay away from that. I'm not going to touch that. She'd be like, oh, it's a miracle. 
but it doesn't happen. Because whatever she tells me not to do and not to touch, what are those things that I do? Those things. I do those things, and I touch those things that she told me not to, right? And so I have to learn. I have to figure this out. But the Lord indeed chastens those whom he loves. Back in our text, verse 5, it says, And so David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed for the people, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people, the men who were with him, these 600 men, was grieved, and very naturally so, every man for his son and his daughters and his wives and their wife. But David strengthened himself in the Lord, and I love this. Even when all things are against him, <laughs> he was a man who knew opposition. Have you ever felt opposition when you just feel like everything's against you? Having a bad day, and then you go home, and then all your, you come home, and your whole family's mad at you for something that you did. And then you go outside, and you start your car, and the engine blows up. Then you walk down the street, and you slip, and you hurt yourself. You break your foot. The ambulance comes, tows you away, and en route to the hospital, gets in an accident. And then there's a great hurricane in New York, which never happens. But this day it does. No, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. And see, that is the, the very difference between him and Saul. David encouraged himself in the Lord. And Saul, he always looked to himself and he trusted in the flesh. I love what David wrote in a psalm. He says, Who are, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. countenance. And I, I love that about David. He was always looking to the Lord in spite of the things that he went through. So verse 7, it says, Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, remember Abiathar was the, the one man of, remember when they went to the city of Nob where the priests were? And Doeg was there who blew David in, but David got the sword of Goliath. And by him being there with Ahimelech the priest and his 85 other men who were serving there with him, um, remember that all those men got killed, but one man escaped. And his name was Abiathar. He was a priest, and he took the ephod and he brought it with him. And so he was among David's mighty, you know, his group of men. And he had the ephod with him, which included the Urim and the Thummim, these things that they would use to divine the, the heart of God or yes or no answers concerning God's will. So David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. Now remember, um, um, well, let's go on to verse 8, excuse me. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, notice, underline that. <laughs> David inquired of the Lord. The reason I have you underline it is because he hadn't been for quite a while. This is the first time since uh, chapter 23 in 1 Samuel. Some time has gone by, and finally we have a record of David inquiring of the Lord. And, the, and it says, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered. God answered him, notice. Now David was just in this deception and, and, and deceiving others and himself, not acting himself. And notice he inquires of the Lord, and the Lord answers him. You know what I call that? Grace. <laughs> that is grace. Grace. 
The thing that is most noteworthy here is that the Lord heard him, and not only did that, but he answered him, and also gave him a promise to recover all, though David was walking in fear and unbelief. What grace. He said, God told him, says, pursue, for you shall surely not only overtake them, but without fail recover all. And the last time again that we saw David inquiring of the Lord or praying at all was in 1 Samuel 23. We see it in verse 2 and verse 4. So in chapter 23, verse 2 and 4 was the last time. And that was when he saved the people of Keilah from the Philistines. And so it would seem that David now is coming back. I can almost hear the song, I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. You know, forgive me, Lord, for the thing that I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. Finally, David, he comes back to the Lord. He's inquiring of the Lord. The Lord's restoring him at this time. And, 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 you know, as you look at these chapters, remember, some time, you know, is, is in between some of these things. And it seems very abrupt to us. But David, all the time that he's dialoguing with, with Achish in his heart, he knows he's living a lie. I believe he was. I believe he knew he was living a lie. And there came a point where the Lord just says, David, what are you doing? And then certainly when they get back to Ziklag, after they take this 80-mile trek from Aphek down to Ziklag, and then finding that everybody's gone, the Lord really shook him and woke him up. And I think David got it. And it was at that moment he was like, you know what? I'm done playing the hypocrite. I'm done acting like God doesn't exist. I'm done with the fear of God help. (laughs) And so he inquires of the Lord, and I love that. But it took a calamity to jolt him, to jostle him out of his sin. I love what it says in Psalm 1, verse 6. It says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. In Psalm 37, verse 17, it says, For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds who? The righteous. The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the time of evil, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, Paul tells us, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Peter also said the second thing, the same thing in his second epistle, chapter 2, verse 9. It says, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. It's interesting to note that in 1 Samuel 28, verse 6, you recall there was, you can write 28 colon 6 off to the margin of that verse in, um, what verse is it? Verse 8. Because David inquires, the, uh, makes, he starts to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord hears him. And yet we saw the same thing happening with Saul in Verse 28, verse 5. Remember when it says, When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, notice it says, The Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. And so you, you look at that, and that's quite a conundrum, isn't it? Why would God, you know, David, playing the hypocrite, now inquiring of the Lord, the Lord going, Oh, David, how you doing? Yeah, what, what's, your, what's going on? 
and then answers his prayer. And then Saul, back in 28 verse 6, inquires of the Lord, and the Lord goes, I'm not listening. I'm not listening to you, Saul. What is the difference? Perhaps the difference here is that God knew the hearts of these two men. He was making this determination based on what he saw in their heart rather than in the outward appearance. Could be that. Perhaps the difference is that David, even though he struggles at times, he turned from those things and turned toward the Lord, whereas Saul continued in his rebellion. There's a difference, isn't there? When somebody continues in their rebellion, there's a point where God will allow you to have your decision for a time. But yet David was not like that. And so David, and not only that, but to mention the messianic promises of Christ in David's lineage. I mean, there was a lot riding on David. God had a lot to do yet in David's life. Saul's time was done. Saul had proven his, his colors by continuing in rebellion. And God had enough of that. And he didn't change. Even though he feigned to, he wanted to know if the battle was going to go well for him. He, he wasn't seeking the Lord because he really had a love for God. He was just seeing the Lord as a rabbit's foot. Tell me, am I going to win against the Philistines? Roll the dice, you know. Let's find out, you know. There's a difference between a man like that than a man after God's own heart like David. David was in it for the relationship. He had, developed, he had a relationship with God. And I would encourage you to have that kind of relationship with God, not one of where you're just kind of like going through the motions. Really seek the Lord. And see, I think when David was out in the field when he was just a young kid, a young teen, and, and chasing those sheep around the desert, he learned so much out there. And I believe that's where his relationship really blossomed. As he had to rely on the Lord for the rain. He had to rely on the Lord to protect him from the lion and the bear. He had to give him the courage to stand up to those things. He gave him the courage to, to take care of these sheep. His father's sheep. There was a great responsibility. And I believe as he stood out there, and perhaps in the evenings, he put them in a pen or put them in a stone enclosure, and he would probably lay out on that rock and look up at the stars and say, God, you're amazing, and he would worship the Lord. See, that's the kind of person God wants from us. He wants someone to really love him, to have an awe and a respect of him, not just a person who just reads the Bible and then we shut it and we don't have anything to do with him for the rest of the day. No, it's a, it's a relationship, isn't it? And see, that's what's different about um, Christianity and other religions. Other religions, you've got to follow this. You've got to toe the line, man. You've got to make sure you do this and do that. Oh, we messed up again. God's not going to be happy with you. You didn't write a, That check is not big enough. You need to write it bigger. Otherwise, the church won't, you know. God cares nothing about those things. He cares about the heart. He wants you. He could care less about your money. Not even your gifts and your talents. He's just like, you know what? I'd just be content to be with you. And what happens when you fellowship with God and you have a heart like that toward you? What, what does it do to you? It changes you radically to where then you're willing to give anything to him. <laughs> Isn't that true? When you experience the kind of love that God has for us, he doesn't require you to come with him with anything. Come to me with all your mess. 
Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. No, come to me with all your problems, he says. Tell me all about it. Don't be afraid. Don't hold anything back. Tell me the good, the bad, and the ugly, especially the bad and the ugly. Tell me all about it. I want to hear it. I want to hear your heart. Have you ever prayed and you just cried and you wept? You know how precious that is to God? When the first person you don't run to is your best friend, not that there's anything wrong with having a best friend, a Christian best friend, they're not the first person you run to. You run to your bedroom, you run to someplace quiet, and you get on your knees, or you get on your face, and you just cry out to him, and you're like, God, I am so broken, I'm so hurt about what has happened. I can't believe this is happening, Lord. Why did you allow this in my life? Why did you allow this circumstance to come up? Why did you allow this, God? It's killing me. Why did you allow my husband to do what, what he did? And what, what, you know, why did you allow my wife to, to be involved in that car accident or, or whatever it is? You know, why did you allow my child to be you know, hurt in that way? Why, why, why? And he's like, just keep talking to me. And I'll give you the peace, I'll give you an understanding that words can't even transcend. I will tell you things, I will, I will do it in your heart. And I might even see, he'll even speak to you in his word at different times. And in your heart, through other people. Where do you go? But David was that kind of man. He loved the Lord, unlike Saul. That's why the Bible could say David was a man after God's own heart. I want to be a man. Do you want to be a woman? Do you want to be a man after God's own heart? You know what? I would encourage you to go full forward. Kick the car into gear and hit the accelerator and burn rubber toward the Lord. Burn rubber. And don't even put on the brakes. Hit the nitrous oxide while you're at it. Get up to about 120 and then hit the... And let the front end of the car lift up. I've been in a car like that. And you'd all be shocked if I told you the name of the person, but I won't because I don't want him to be in trouble. Actually, I was the one in trouble. Well, let me tell you. No, I won't. But yes, it was a 67 Camaro, and it had wheelie bars on the back. And we got to about 60 miles an hour, and this individual said, are you ready? And I said, what do you mean? (laughs) He goes, watch this. And he punched it, and the front end of the car lifted up. And we're smoking. The tires in the back, you know, they're about that wide. They go. But that's the way we need to go to the Lord. And don't even put on the brake. Don't even hit the parachute that comes out the back and slows you down. No, just go forward to the Lord like a raging bull and say, Lord, take me. I don't want to stop. I want to run right into you. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it, and they are safe. Amen? Just run into the Lord. Let him heal all your heartbreaking things. And David was that kind of individual. Saul was never like that. He was never like that. But David was like that, and God wants you and I to be like that. Oh, God, make that true in my own life. And he's making it true. So verse 9, it says, So David went, he and the 600 men who were with him. So 600 guys, and they came to the brook Bezor. 
where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued, he and 400 men, for the 200 men stayed behind who were so weary that they could not cross the river Bezor. The river Bezor is just south of Gaza, and it's a river that really runs uh, sort of um, southeast, right under Ziklag, uh, which is to the north. And so they cross from Ziklag, they go over across this river Bezor into the land of where the Amalekites had taken the people from Ziklag. And this place, this Bezor, it literally means cool because the water from the mountains melts and it runs and it goes down into the Mediterranean. So this is a great fresh water source. And so they go down. And it says, and then they found, as they go down, they cross the river. And 200 of the men were so weary because of the journey. Remember, they had just made this three-day three journey from Aphek all the way down to Ziklag. They're tired they're emotionally distraught because of what's happened, and now they're going to go out to battle again. And 200 of the guys, that's, that's one-third of his men, are like, we just cannot do this, David. We don't have the grace for this. And David said, no problem. You stay here by the stuff, and the two-thirds of us, the 400 of us, we're going to go after him. <laughs> I love that. So as they're going after the Amalekites, it says in verse 11, that they found an Egyptian in the field and they brought him to David and they gave him a piece of bread and he ate and they gave, let him drink water. And they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him and he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. Notice the compassion that David, you know, he wasn't this, he wasn't this trained killer. You know, as much as his exploits were very well known and as much of a great warrior as he was, one of the great things that, about David is he, he had this great warrior, the skill of a warrior, but he had the compassion in the heart of God. He sees a man out in the field, and David said to him, verse 13, To whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. So here you have this man this, you know, uh, who was a, a servant of an Amalekite. An Amalekite in the Bible is, is a type of the flesh, somebody who is dominated by Satan. And notice how Satan treats his servants. He falls sick. They're retreating for the, with spoil from the battle, not assuming they're going to run into anybody because they, the Amalekites think the Israelites are way up north fighting this battle with the Philistines. They, don't even, they could have taken the time. The Amalekite could have helped his servant from Egypt. But what does he do? He falls sick? and eh, just leave him. Isn't that what Satan does to us? <laughs> he doesn't care about you. You know, I think of all these musicians and these rock groups and they're, they're on the Grammys or the Emmys or whatever awards they get. And they're having the time of their life, making the money, having the fame. And they don't even realize that the devil has got them in their clutch of their hand. And then before long, you get the news clipping. So-and-so, you know, fentanyl and drugs. He died. Another one got drunk, fell off a building, died. The other guy, he's got three wives. They're all divorcing him. You know, I mean, it's just... It's just complete disaster. Amalek is a type of the flesh. And we see this Egyptian servant as sort of like the, a type of the needy sinner. 
And David here and his men, or David, like a type of Christ, he sees the needy sinner, he, like the Samaritan that we looked at last Sunday morning, or, you know, the, um, the Samaritan who sees the man wounded, you know, and he goes down and he lifts him up and he takes him and takes care of him, has him taken care of. But David, his compassion. And then verse 14 and notice what the Egyptian says to David. And this is, and he's fearful for his life. And maybe he doesn't realize who it is that he's speaking to. The Egyptian says to David, We made an invasion of the southern area of the Cherethites, which is down in the southern part of, of Israel, down there by um, uh, uh, south of Ziklag, down in that area down there. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Cherethites and the territory which belongs to Judah and of the southern area of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Can you take me down to this troop? And so he said, Swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this troop. <laughs> and when he had brought him down, there, there they were spread out all, all over the land, Notice, they were eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah, including Ziklag. And why are they doing that? Because what, are the, what is the Amalekites? What are they thinking? It was a perfect time for them to raid these southern borders because where was the rest of Israel? They were up north fighting the Philistines in the valley of Jezreel. It was the perfect storm. So there they are, and it says, Dave, uh, verse 17, David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except for 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. And so David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. He recovered everything, and even more in abundance because he raided them. He spoiled them for all the spoils that they had spoiled from Judah, right? So now they not only got all their stuff back, but from all the places in Judah where the Amalekites had raided and grabbed all their loot and stuff, they got all that back too. And we'll see what he does with that a little bit later. But think of how rewarding it was for this man of Egypt. Put your place in this man of Egypt. He's laying there in the middle of the sun. He's been there three days. He's, he's sick. He's, he's on death's door. It makes you wonder why some of the forest animals didn't find him. The coyotes or the, the foxes or the bears or whatever, lions. He's laying out there. Nobody cares. And now he's actually able. He's serving a new master, isn't he? He's serving David, who has treated him with great compassion. Not only didn't he didn't David didn't kill him, but he also made sure that he was safe from his master, who treated him horribly, which is very typified in Christ. Christ doing the same thing. We serve him because he loves us. The devil he 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 wants to just destroy us. What a slave master he is! What a horrible horrible slave driver he is! But God comes along and rescues us. Hallelujah. Amen. But think of how rewarding this would have been for this man to know that as these people are coming back, he was once a slave himself, and now he's seeing so many hundreds of people 
women and young kids being taken out of that certain place of slavery and the, and the horrible conditions they would have had to endure. Verse 20 says, Then David took all the flocks and the herds they had driven before them and their livestock and said, This is David's spoil. And now David came to the 200 men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, whom they also had made to stay at the, the brook Bezor, which, remember, this, this, this brook is in the southern part, right to the south of Gaza, uh, and it empties out into the Mediterranean. It, it, goes from, it flows from east to west, from the mountain areas, cold, fresh water. So David... Um, so they went out to meet David, these men who had stayed by the stuff while they went and fought the battle, and, 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 to the peop- and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them, and then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, Because they didn't go with us, we will not give any of them any of the spoil which we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. So there were men, isn't it amazing? And this group of guys, they're just a ragtag, rough bunch of guys. And some of them are like, you know what? These guys stayed here by the, by the brook. They couldn't make it. But we, the tough guys, you know, we're the ones who went out in battle. We're not going to give them anything. We'll give them their wife and their children back, but nothing less. That's it. Nothing more. Off, off you go. Isn't that an awful heart? <laughs> and then David, what does he say? But David said, "My brethren, you shall not do so with the Lord has give, with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall be his part who stays by the supplies, and they shall share alike. And this is a really wonderful concept, isn't it? A wonderful thing that David did. He says, you know what, when, we're, when we go to battle, there are some people who are going to have to stay by the stuff, and there are some of us who are going to have to go out to battle. For whatever reason, they stay by the stuff, and we have to go out to battle. But when we come back with the spoil, we divide it evenly among ourselves. And I wonder if David... I wonder if David heard this before. Because back, right next to that verse 24, I want you to write down a scripture reference. It's Numbers 31. Numbers 31, verse 25 through 54. Numbers 31, verse 25 through 54. There was the battle of, the, uh, of Israel when they were um, still on the east side of the Jordan River. Before they crossed over into the Promised Land, there was a battle that they had with the Midianites. And the, and the Lord had Moses do the same thing with the spoils of war as David is doing now. And I, I, in fact, let me just read the first uh, verses 25 through 27 to you in this uh, Numbers passage, Numbers 31. It says that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Count up the plunder that was taken against the Midianites of man and beast, you and Eleazar the priest and the chief fathers of the congregation. And notice what he says, And divide the plunder into two parts, between those who took part in the war, who went out to battle, and all the congregation. We see the precedent back in Numbers 31. Now, whether David remembered that or had access to that or whether the Spirit of God just gave it to him, it doesn't really matter. He did it anyway 
Because it was the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do. So verse 25, so it was from that day forward, he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoils to the elders of Judah, to his friends. Remember, these are the people that harbored him and his men when he was on the run from Saul. And there were certain people that helped David along the way. And so he's going to reward them with these things. And after all, it was these people from Judah and the Kenites and these people in the, in the southern area of Judah were the ones that were robbed by the Amalekites to begin with. So do you see what's happening? David, being this vagabond, and as he was running from Saul, he had certain people that he could trust. Not many, but he had friends. And now the Amalekites come at this opportune moment. They raid Judah. They steal a bunch of stuff. David goes after them gets his wife, because they raided Ziklag too, he gets all the stuff back from his own, you know, his own town and the people, and he also takes back what the Amalekites stole from Judah, and now he's starting to give it away, giving it back to them. And what a wonderful gesture it is. And it was a good thing too, because David was winning the heart of the Israelites back to him, his own tribe of Judah, because if Judah wasn't going to accept him as king, he'd be in a lot of trouble. Now, I think David was doing this because of his own natural heart. I don't think he was doing it just to, you know, to save face. I think he really wanted to restore because he loved the people, even though he was in a kind of a strange place for a time because of his fear and unbelief. But notice what it says. So, verse 26, So when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. And to those, and, and here it lists, from here to the end of the chapter, it lists the, the, the people, the groups of people that he, he gave spoil back to them. It says, To those who were in Bethel, verse 27, those who were in Ramoth of the south, those who were in Jatir, those who were in Aurorah, those who were in Sifmoth, those who were in El Eshtemoa, those who were in Rachel, those who were in the cities of Jeramelites, those who were in the cities of the Kenites, those who were in Horma, those who were in Koration, those who were in Athak, those who were in Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove. So these men of Judah who were faithful in helping David and his men during the flight from Saul, they get rewarded in great measure. Do you remember back in Samuel chapter 22? This was right before Saul murdered Ahimelech and his sons in the city of Nob after David had left there. Remember what Saul said to his men at that time? He said this, he said to his servants who stood about him, he said, Hear now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? What is David doing now with the plunder that the Amalekites had taken from them? He's given it all back. And it lists all the towns and all the people. Because of his heart, David had a, a wonderful heart. And that's the kind of heart that we need, Amen. And yes, David ultimately did give them rewards, much to the chagrin of Saul, who only saw David in the worst possible light, but David, again, had a heart of compassion. He loved people, and that's what made him a great king, as we're going to see. And so what a blessing. What a blessing. 
You know, if we could have um, Aubrey come on up, we're going to take communion. And I want to encourage you. You know, when you feel like God is far away from you and you feel like you've blown it, God is not done with you. He's not done with you. There's no mistake that you can make if you really have learned from it and you're really repentant of it and you really are desiring to be restored to God. He is not going to turn you away. But the thing is, is that we do that. You know, when we, when we blow it, we confess. Remember the promise in 1 John chapter 1. Verse 9, I think it is. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from our sins and then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise. That's a promise that God gives. Let's take advantage of it and not get to the place like Saul where we just continue to, to do the wrong thing. You know, the, the decisions that we make are just always wrong. But let's get to David, like David, where his heart was. He started to inquire of the Lord. He learned his lesson. He, he figured it out. The Lord shook his tree, so to speak. He, he brought him into a place where his life, everything was taken away from him. And the Lord got his attention. And isn't it true the Lord knows how to get each one of our attention? With me, he doesn't have to apply the heat too much. And I, I'm crying uncle. But sometimes he comes into a life like a hurricane. And is it just because he just wants to be mean? No. He chastens those whom he loves. And sometimes when we're going in the wrong direction, we need our tree shaken a little bit. And some of us have gone through some really horrible things, very difficult things, very trying things, and know that God loves you even in the midst of those things. He's not mad at you, but he is getting your attention. Will you... Allow your ears to be attentive, your heart to be attentive to him. See, that's what we need. That's what we need. Amen? Amen. As, uh, as we worship, just feel free to come on up and grab the, um, the bread and the cup and bring it back to your chair, and we'll take it together, okay? One of the great privileges that we have as Christians is to take communion. And when we take communion, when we take the, the bread and the, and the cup... We know that it's symbolic of Jesus' body that was broken for us, that while Jesus was in that upper room the night before he would be betrayed, and the very next day his body would be broken through the whips and the scourgings and the spear and the crown of thorns on his head, his flesh would be broken, and then his blood would be spilled. Jesus, the night before, already knowing what was ahead of him, he said, take, eat of the bread, for this, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this often in remembrance of me. And so he took the piece of bread and he passed it around. And so let's take the bread. And when he had done that, he had taken the, the cup of the, the wine. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. And I find it interesting that Jesus said that when he hadn't even gone to the cross yet. Don't you find that interesting? Because the very next day, he was very much in control of what was going to happen, even though there were at times where it seemed like something else could have happened. Remember when he was on trial with Pilate, and Pilate said, 
I, have no, I find nothing wrong with him. And he was willing to let him go. Do you think Jesus is going, oh, no, all the prophecies and all the things, are, it's, it's coming to an end right now. i I got I to do something. No, he was in perfect control. He knew that Pilate would ultimately, because he's a man pleaser, he knew he would give him up. And certainly he did. Jesus wasn't worried at all. The night before, he said, this is the blood of my new covenant. Because it was, in his mind, in his heart, it was already a done deal. He knew what was going to happen. He just had to walk through it in obedience. And God made sure that the Son of God, his body would be broken and his blood would be spilled for us. The only sacrifice that could have occurred that could reconcile us to a holy God was a perfect sacrifice, which all the sacrifices in history in the Jewish custom was not able to put away. The blood and bulls and goats wasn't good enough. It just, it was a temporary thing until the real thing came, which is Jesus Christ. And so when we take the cup, we acknowledge that truth His blood takes away the sin of the world, my sin and your sin. Thank you, Jesus. And we take this in honor of you and in remembrance of you in your precious name. Amen. Why don't we stand together and let's pray. And if you could, just hold on to these little things. And at the doors, there are... um, garbage cans, if you could dispose of them there, that would be really wonderful. That way we don't find them filled with ants a couple days from now. (laughs) It is, after all, summer. So, Father, we just thank you for this time together. We thank you for the, the passage that we read, Lord. We thank you for the exhortations, Lord, the warnings, Lord, that are there. And, um, Lord, we just ask that you would do that same work in us that you did in David. Lord, just reconciling us, Lord. I thank you for the the restoration, Lord, that you have worked on our behalf, Lord. There's no one else that could have done it, Lord. We certainly couldn't have done it because of any good work that we may have done. Lord, it had to be the Son of God taking that price for us. And so, Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you, Lord, that we are in your beloved. Thank you that you love us. And we just pray for your blessing on us now as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you all. And to all, a good night.